Stay tuned now for Wild Women. Good evening and welcome to the very first edition of Wild Women, a new show on KZYX focused on contemporary and historical issues that impact the lives of women. I'm Lux Karpov, USA Today bestselling author, screenwriter, and singer. And I'm Alicia Bales, program director here at KZYX and a voice and communications coach with a background in community organizing and forest protection. Tonight's show will focus on the immediate threat to abortion rights in the U.S. posed by the Supreme Court. We'll hear stories from women forced to seek illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade and interview Colleen Donovan-Batson, a midwife, teacher, and activist. And we'll talk about our own experiences with pregnancy and reproductive health. So I came up with the show title Wild Women because to me, the idea of exploring the elements of femininity and womanhood and, and what it means to be a woman in our society and throughout history, I want to explore that through a lens that is not... I don't know, tamed by the patriarchy. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I want to explore in a way that's really freeing for uh, anyone who joins in the discussion, women's, women, femmes, and uh, anyone who is an ally to the causes that affect people who have uteruses. Uteri or uteruses? Who have a uterus. So one of the things affecting people with uteruses is the choice to carry a pregnancy or not. Yes. So one of the things I wanted to do with this show is to tackle subjects and topics that either are being under-discussed or need more voices to further the dialogue. And yeah, this topic kind of hit us in the face, like smacked us in the face when we were discussing what the first show should be about. Because we're clearly, I mean, it's definitely a war on uterus. We need to figure out how to say uterus is plural. Uteri. Let's say... um the uterus. The, a war on the uterus. <laughs> I mean, it would be it a, war on, it's a war on women, and we get some good alliteration for that, but I don't want to yeah. discount the people who wouldn't. Who don't like it's a, it's a war on women, and it's a war on people who have a uterus. Mm-hmm. And I want to acknowledge the fact that it's not just women affected by this issue, but also mm-hmm. be like acknowledge the fact that women are disproportionately affected by this issue. It's our health and our livelihood and anyone who has a uterus who has to deal with this. In preparation for this show, I listened to some of the uh, testimonials of women who were trying to get an abortion before Roe v. Wade Wade was passed, and I think we'll be playing a few of those excerpts today, but what really struck me, there was a comment by a doctor who talked about how these women knew that they were risking their lives to seek abortion, and they didn't care. They would, not that they didn't care, but they would it didn't impact their choices. They weren't willing to risk anything. <clears throat> they put they put all of the risk <clears throat> on the women, including the women risking their lives to get abortions. Yeah, the, the doctors, doctors weren't willing to risk anything, right. and the women were willing to risk everything. And what does it say about a society that forces women to make that choice between their life and a pregnancy? How desperate do you have to be to not be pregnant, to be willing to die, to change the circumstances of your body? And that reality just struck me so hard that we're moving back to that place Mm -hmm. where we're not going to eliminate abortion we know what eliminates abortion or what it reduces abortion and it's it's access to adequate birth control for low-income families and for marginalized people it's you know safe and clear and correct information about sexual health and destigmatization destigmatization of it all the thing about (laughs) it is the disproportionate consequences for people who engage in the same act 
right? So the the people who are having sex that result in the pregnancy, only one of them has to be put in a position to risk their life. And yeah. the other one doesn't have any of that. Well, the other one can walk away. Totally. Without any repercussion. Now for some historical perspective. Let's listen to the voices of women who actually sought abortions during the days before Roe versus Wade. This comes from a documentary produced by WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and it was first broadcast in the early 90s. Until the mid-1800s, abortions were legal and available in the United States. Both the state and the church permitted abortions if they occurred before quickening when the mother first perceived fetal movement. In 1847, the newly formed American Medical Association began a campaign to professionalize medicine by outlawing what it called quackery. Included in its ban were midwives and herbalists who had provided abortion and maternity care in their communities for centuries. During the second half of the 19th century, Victorian society began to condemn women seeking abortions as selfish, immoral, and shirking the duty of motherhood. Protestant and Catholic churches joined the medical establishment in expressing their condemnation. Meanwhile, legislation restricting abortion continued to spread, and by the turn of the century, both birth control and abortion were illegal in most states. If a woman needed medical treatment after a botched abortion, she faced a humiliating and dangerous situation. Even though infected and bleeding, she was often required to testify against her husband or lover and the abortionist before she could receive medical care. Believing I am about to die, make this my anti-mortem statement. I became acquainted with John Schockweiler. I had sexual intercourse with him, and in the month of May, I noticed that I was pregnant. I, Cora Alice Grimes, about to die, make this statement. On the second day of July, 1896, James Dunn, a retail merchant, gave me a packet of calomel. I took two doses of the calomel. I, Renetti Parker, I'm about to die. I went to visit Dr. Parker. Well into the 20th century, a climate of fear prevailed. I went to medical school in New York City in the 50s when abortions were illegal. And every day, the city hospital that my medical school staffed would have 20 or 30 women come in infected and bleeding and dying from abortions that they had induced themselves and the coat hanger trick was used and or they had a friend that had a catheter and they'd leave the catheter in until uh, for a day or two and she was she was bleeding and cramping uh, and they'd come in and that's not an exaggeration I think it was true in any major city area in this country in the 50s when we got them we received them like with the temperature of a uh, 105, bleeding, totally, totally in, in, infected. We had some die in shock because they did not tell the truth and they was afraid to tell the truth as to what had happened. They knew it was illegal and they felt like we were only getting the information to report them to the police. 
it's like turn me in, that I boarded myself. It was just plain housewives who felt like I can't afford another child. I couldn't have that baby because if I did and I died, who would take care of the little baby I had? And so I asked the young woman where I worked. I worked at a Walgreens drugstore, and I asked them if there was somebody who could help me do something. You didn't say the word abortion in those days. And they knew what I wanted. And they sent me to a woman, and she told me that she would do it for $50. This was in 1939, and $50 was a lot of money. Then I sold everything I had that I could get a few pennies for, and I eventually got my $50, and I went out to see this woman. And she put, I think it was a strip of uh, slippery elm bark, and she inserted this up my uterus. And uh, she said, now you go home, and that will swell up, and you will have pain, and you will probably have some temperature, but you will have a miscarriage. Two days later, I had a screaming fever, and I was in such pain. And I went back out to see this woman, and the, she lived in a shack. And she met me at the door, and she said, I told you not to come back. And I said, I have nowhere else to go. And so she cleaned me up, and I was so frightened, and I was in tears. And she put her arms around me like that, and she just held me up to her chest for a minute, and she said, honey, did you think it was so easy to be a woman? I'll never forget that, never forget the kindness of that woman, even under those terrible circumstances. And so she said, this time you go. She gave me some aspirin. She said, don't you ever come back again. And that was the last I saw of her. And I had a roaring fever for about three or four days, and then I got better. And um, I went back to see my doctor when I got the money for the visit. And I told him, I said, I had something done. And he said, well, I figured a smart kid like you would figure a way out of it. And I looked at him then, and I thought, how could he? How could he? This was a man trained and licensed, and he turned me away. And I had to go out and find this woman to do this. And it was to, to save my very own life. The day came, and they took me to uh, a motel several miles from Boise. It was a dirty motel, and I was alone with this woman, and I remember what she looked like really well. She was, she was dirty, too, and uh, not friendly, really divorced from from the proceedings, and she gave me a cervical puncture, and I remember the, the, the steel tool, you know. And uh, then she told me to go, and, and that there would be blood, but it would be all right. And, and But the fact is that I didn't abort, and uh, I just bled a lot. And uh, it was incredibly painful, and I got a bad infection. And they started looking for a doctor because I just kept bleeding and bleeding and uh, not aborting. And uh, finally they found a doctor. He, g he gave me some medication to make me abort. 
and I aborted at home so that if he were caught, he would uh, be able to prove that the process had been initiated before he became involved. And he explained that to me, that he wanted to be able to help other women who found themselves in my position and that the only way he could protect himself was that. And so that was, I, I had to do that alone. I didn't tell anyone except the father. And when I saw his reaction, I didn't tell anyone else. I just thought, well, this is my problem and I'll have to deal with it. And the only thing I could do was to get an abortion because to have a baby without a husband just was not done. I just went to the telephone directory and I looked up obstetricians, gynecologists, and I looked for a gynecologist that didn't advertise as an obstetrician. And I thought maybe he would be most sympathetic. And it turned out he was. Researchers have interviewed doctors who were in medical practice when abortion was illegal. There were many physicians who were supportive of abortion, who felt it should be available and provided safely for women. But they were afraid to do them themselves. Sometimes the fear was because they, they didn't want to be found out or would be censured. But very often, their fear was, and rightly, I think, that as soon as word got out that they were willing to do abortions, they would be flooded with requests. One of the doctors who started off thinking he would do a few abortions found himself getting referrals of women from all over the United States. In 1965, he began to do abortions for women referred to him by ministers. Over the course of the next eight years, he did thousands of abortions. I began to realize how difficult it was to obtain the this, this service, uh, how desperately women needed it and wanted it, and to what lengths they would go to obtain it, even to readily risking their life. People talk about as though women didn't know that. That didn't matter. Women risk their life every day to, to get, an, get an abortion somewhere in this country. Many of them did, without hesitation. You're listening to Wild Women on KZYX. I'm Lux Karpov. And I'm Alicia Bales. And you just heard an excerpt from the documentary When Abortion Was Illegal. Nothing like going through a pregnancy and childbirth ever educated me about why not to make other people, not make these choices for other people, particularly childbirth. So I thought, oh, I'm going to do it all naturally. And that's the best way to do it. And I'm going to do it without painkillers. And I'll be at home. After I gave birth, like the minute after, I had an overwhelming sense of no woman should ever be forced to do that. That this isn't like no one should be judged for any choice that they make to go through whatever level of drugs they need. <laughs> like that was so painful. I mean, and everybody has different experiences, yeah. but and, and then the same with breastfeeding. It's like no one should ever guilt trip or judge or try to tell a woman what to do with her body uh, around feeding her child ever. I mean, these because even though you might have opinions about what's best for the baby or whatever. 
We're talking about a woman's body. Like no one can make these choices for anyone except for the person whose body it is. And that's just, you know, from experiencing it, I would never put somebody through any of that stuff unless it was their choice to do it. Just never. It's honestly asinine to me that we can even think it's okay to, to tell women they have to endure this. Women should never be made to be forcibly... uh, serve as a life support system for another life. We don't require that in any other circumstance. We don't even require dead people to donate their bodies or their organs that could save other people's lives after they no longer need them. And spoiler alert, but women are still using the bodies that they have when they get pregnant or nurse, and it's still our body. And so breasts may be best if that is a decision that the mom also feels comfortable with or the person nursing. But the question can't just be what's best for the baby. It also has to be what's best for the person's body who is the one being asked to do the things. When I was nine years old, I closed it when I was 18. I gave them every penny that I had saved, and they gave my blood and my urine a number. And now I'm sitting in this waiting room, playing with the toys. And I am here to exercise my freedom of choice. I passed their handheld signs. I, I went through their picket lines. They gathered when they saw me coming. They shouted when they saw me cross. I said, Why don't you go home? Just leave me alone. I'm just another woman lost. You are like fish in the water who don't know that they are wet. As far as I can tell, the world isn't perfect yet. wasn't touching mine I am growing older waiting in this line but some of life's best lessons are learned at the worst times that was Ani DiFranco with Lost Woman Song this is Wild Women I'm your co-host Alicia Bales here with Lex Karpov next we'll talk with midwife and educator Colleen Donovan Batson Colleen is a midwife, nurse practitioner, and director of the Division of Health Policy and Advocacy for Midwives Alliance of North America. She's also a teacher of women's reproductive health. She lives in Port Townsend, Washington now, but she used to live and practice here in Mendocino County, and she was my midwife when my son was born. Aw, that's know. <laughs> so here's Colleen Donovan-Batson. One question I think is why midwives would be co- so concerned about 
abortion restrictions. Right. And, and I think that's because for those of us like me who have been involved in policy work, um, we do have influence from our international guiding body, which is the International Confederation of Midwives. Um, and they put together standards and competencies for midwives, which include abortion care. It's always been a sticking point here in the United States um, and probably is in other countries. So what what ICM or International Confederation of Midwives is, it's, it's an association for midwifery associations. So it has like 120 associations of midwives around the world with, you know, I don't know, 800,000 members or maybe more, like many, you know, if you, if you look at um, the midwife members. And, and so in, you know, in many countries, um, women die from unsafe abortions. And so this is why our feeling and our beliefs about um, abortion care for, for midwives is essential. Um, and, and what ICM has done in terms of statements is come out saying essentially um, associations in, in their respective countries need to work toward educating midwives. So whether it's providing abortion care, um, you know, that's the ideal to be able to have that fullness of scope as a midwife, at least to be have the knowledge and training, but then also for midwives to have the knowledge of recognizing complications um, of unsafe abortion and being able to treat those complications. So you may not feel like as a midwife you want to provide abortion, but you damn well better be able to know how to recognize somebody who's, you know, infected, septic, bleeding, whatever and know how to treat it. And what is the practice right now in this country or in various states of midwives practicing abortion care with their patients? Is that something that a lot of midwives are providing? The percentage, I wouldn't be able to know that off the top of my head. And of course, everything in our country varies by state, which is just so ridiculous. Um, but certainly there are midwives who are um, able by statute or regulatory language to provide primarily medication abortion. Um, but I have to tell you about this amazing midwife-led center in Memphis called Choices. It is a women's health center where you can have an abortion and you can have your baby in, a, in the birth center in the same location. It's like complete and total mid, midwife-led, women-centered um, care. And of course, I have to consider my terminology now because I got to be more birthing people, abortion meeting people, care, um, choices, owned and run by a midwife. Um, and so, you know, it is like the cutting edge leading thing that we all would aspire to have is a setting like that where you can have your complete reproductive needs cared for in one place. And why is that so important? Like, why is that such a priority for midwives um, that that those choices and that women and people with uteruses are empowered to make choices about their own reproductive uh, life? Well, I mean, I think this comes back to that point about being a human right, because abortion is health care. Health care is a human right. Therefore, abortion is a human right. So not, you know, I mean, of course, this is the important and um, timely thing we're talking about now, but all of our reproductive health needs for those who, as you mentioned, those who have uteruses, you know, those who need health care wherever they are in their life cycle um, and, and us being 
careful to be um, correct with our gender language also brings up the point that kind of gender non-conforming folks really struggle to get care that's respectful. And that's another area that midwives um, are moving into really working hard to provide that care. Here in Washington, there, there are a lot of opportunities. There are trainers, um, non-binary folks who are training midwives in how to, to really give gender inclusive care. Um, so, you know, I think that that folks who are, you know, kind of not the just traditional conservative white Christians um, are seeking midwifery care because they're outside of, of you know, those um, lines and and are welcomed with with midwives. Can you expand more on um, your thoughts about abortion being a health care issue, abortion being like a human right and health care uh, that seems self-evident to me, but I, 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 I'd like to hear you talk more about that. And also the consequences of pregnancy on people with uteri, the, the toll that it can take. Why is it so important that people who are able to get pregnant have the options to not carry that pregnancy if they choose to? Whenever I consider this thing that you're talking about, about the importance, it always makes me remember I've cared for two 12-year-olds giving birth in my career. Oh God. Um, and, and, you know, years past, I worked in a hospital setting where I, I did a high volume of births. And so, you know, I have a lot of experiences, but one of those 12 year olds sucked her thumb throughout the whole course of labor. So if you imagine having teenagers yourselves, um, you know, having your 12 year old in labor, giving birth, and really it was like the accepted unspoken in the room that, you know, with these ants that were present that, well, this happens to all of us because, you know, we all have this uncle in the family and, you know, and, and so this is to me what it comes down to in the end of us being able to make decisions about our own bodies. You know, it's really easy for us to be glib and say, well, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. Although I feel strongly about that message. Um, you know, it's not anybody else's right to say what we do with our bodies. Our bodies are our own, and and none of us should need to bear that burden. Um, I have I have a friend who's like an environmental. Well, she's not a friend. She's she's you know Facebook acquaintance and somebody who spoke at a conference that I met. You might have heard of her, Sandra Steingrabber, I think is her last name. She's an environmentalist and really um, works out against fracking. So she's been tweeting a lot about how, you know, these paths have gone down. We've heard about it from the Supreme Court justices around, well, it's really easy. You just have the baby and you give it up for adoption. Well, it, it's not that easy. You know, it isn't that easy. There are ramifications of being pregnant. Pregnancy is, is far more dangerous than using birth control, for example, <clears throat> you know, particularly if you're on kind of the outer edges, but it, it, even that doesn't really matter. You know, there is risk to pregnancy and birth. Um, and I have also experienced all kinds of difficult circumstances for those situations where people are choosing to relinquish. And, and that is something that Sandra, I've noticed has been tweeting a lot about as an adoptee, talking about how, you know, this is just not a bed of roses being somebody who's been adopted. Um, and, and I think that that's another area that it's too easy. We're too easy to, to go down that path and just say, it's give your baby up. 
Um, I mean, I, I, I'm grateful that that's available. I have another story about that of having a woman come into the hospital in labor by herself saying, telling us that no one in her family knew she was pregnant. No one in her family knew she was pregnant. She needed to have the baby and relinquish it and go home like in a matter of hours. And we accomplished that for her um, arranging, you know, but you have to wonder about the circumstances because we, the social worker might've gotten more details, but me as a midwife, she didn't share more than how crucially important this was that no one knew she had come in and given birth. Um, so what is happening in her life and would it have been easier for her if she'd had the option to be able to end that pregnancy? Um, this is something I feel like we're not talking about in our society. I've had three children and I've had zero conversations with healthcare providers about the impact that pregnancy would have on my health. And I had an autoimmune condition that was undiagnosed before I had my first child. And I now have a permanent autoimmune condition that causes chronic health issues because I went through three pregnancies and three C-sections without knowing the damage it could do to my body. And I didn't get the proper postnatal care and I didn't have to pay for it because I was um, married to someone in the military at the time. But can you talk more about the cost of pregnancy, like the financial cost of being pregnant, the financial cost of, of going through that, even if you are going to give it up production and the physical costs that women pay? Like, what are some of the things you see in pregnancies that and what are, what is what are some of the things you wish people knew more about, like the, the, the cause, the consequences of pregnancy, the the things that we don't talk about as a society. Because I feel like nobody cares about the woman's health in these conversations. Right. Is, is right. the baby healthy? Is the baby being adopted? You don't have to give up the baby because you can do this. But what about the woman or the person who's carrying the child? What about the person who has the uterus, who has the body that is being subjected to this? Right, right. And and if you were that person mm -hmm. in Texas, you know, it, it wouldn't matter that you became pregnant and it was going to be dangerous and life-threatening to you. Um, it wouldn't matter if you were near the end of your pregnancy and you developed severe complications um, that really required the pregnancy to be terminated. Like some of the severe, you know, there are rare pregnancy complications like HELP syndrome, which is like a blood pressure and blood clotting disorder um, often associated with preeclampsia. Some of these things, the only thing that fixes them is no longer being pregnant. And so if that option is taken away from you, you know, then the, then the option is that you may die because you're unable where you're living in that time to be able to end pregnancy. And then this, this, of course, you know, is what helped change the laws in Ireland, as you may know, with, um, you know, the woman who had, who had a septic pregnancy and, and died because there was no option to terminate the pregnancy. But another thing that, and, and what, you were just talking about Lux was reminding me of a paper that I just wrote um, in the program that I'm in. And that was on <clears throat> post-traumatic uh, stress disorder related to pregnancy and childbirth and how, how that is worsened so much for people who have pre-existing issues with trauma, whether it's sexual abuse, sexual trauma, you know, huge percentages um, of people have those issues and how pregnancy and then childbirth and the, the procedures and the interventions that happen typically in childbirth for someone like you had C-sections um, that worsen and, and often you know, provoke or trigger or, or re bring back um, maybe a condition that had been managed 
because you got therapy and that sort of thing. But then you're in the hospital in labor and five different people come in and want to stick their fingers in your vagina, um, you know, and, and push all these issues. Um, and there's this high incidence and it's, it's poorly studied. Um, the implications of mothers, childbearing people having, suffering with PTSD after childbirth and what that does to their family dynamics um, the, how the child is being raised, how the child, you know, the circumstances, whether the bonding is appropriate, whether there's even attachment. I mean, there's a lot of research that's coming that's out about that, um, but it's not even talked about. And, you know, I mean, I'd be interested to know if anybody took a history for you in your pregnancies and asked you questions about whether you had, you know, a history of trauma, whether it's, um, physical violence, you know, abuse, um, sexual abuse, that kind of thing. And if, and if so, if they identified that and then did any appropriate referrals for you, because that's really, really uncommon. If I didn't, I don't remember experiencing anything even close to that level of pre postnatal care at all. Like there was no, and maybe I'm misremembering and it's been a while, you know, my oldest is now in college, but I don't feel like there was ever a discussion about my health and unless it related directly to is the baby healthy. Yes. Right. Right. Because, you know, we're seen as the vessel. And now it's you California, know. you know, California, one of the kids was Montana, but two were California. And the, you bring up a really good point that I'd, I'd actually never considered the kind of trauma that someone who had experienced sexual abuse could experience with just the regular prenatal appointments and, and the process of giving birth. I, I never like really connected right. the dots with that, but if, especially if the pregnancy is a result of sexual trauma oh and having goodness. to go through forced examinations and pelvic, that's horrific. Right. Right. And there's, yeah. you know, in standard OB care there, there is very rarely a discussion mm-hmm. or a conversation. It's more a matter of, you know, get undressed today, take off your pants today. You're, you know, and then you're just told, lay down, put your feet up. Okay, you're getting an exam, you're getting your membrane stripped, you're getting, you know, a test, whatever it is, it's just you're told what to do as if you belong to someone else, as if your body is not really your own. Um, and that's, I mean, I have a lot of other traumatic kind of things of hospital practice in yeah. terms of things that go on there. Um, and that whole know-it-all sort of, we know better attitude and, and we, we're here to take care of you. And sadly, um, many of these circumstances are, are worse in places around the world where women are actually physically abused, you know, slapped and, and verbally abused, um, <laughs> called names and yelled at and told, you know, you should have kept your legs closed and, you know, these sort of things. So... Again, you know, really, I mean, it all comes down to patriarchy, doesn't it? In the end, well, that's, what all this, Indeed. that's what underlies all of this. And this is what yeah. we work so hard. You know, what I'm doing now is um, not actively practicing. I'm working as a college professor in a midwifery program. And this is what we're really trying to help the young upcoming uh, midwives understand is, you know, we need these paradigm shifts um, that really help women to acknowledge and recognize their autonomy. You know, if you're a birthing person, you're in charge of your body. If you're a pregnant person, you're in charge of your body. Um, 
and and sadly, I think the media and and popular culture has really you know made folks who are birthing afraid and not trusting. Um, Ina May Gaskin made a lovely pin, uh, and I think it's in one of her books that says, "Your body is not a lemon. You know, you you are able to do this. You, there is not something wrong with you." Um, but that is kind of how culture has perpetuated things for those who are giving birth, sadly. And it's well, a, an interesting question, too, about, you know, by the time you're carrying a pregnancy that you don't want, there have probably been a number of incidents that have happened to your body that you don't want. It doesn't start necessarily with choosing to terminate a pregnancy. It starts with the power to be able to say no to sex that you don't want, which is, as we know, a real problem for women uh, in, in their life experiences. So I think, yeah, we're talking about the roots of what gets, you know, what brings us to this moment where we need to make this decision. And then, you know, these restrictive laws continuing to take away our options to actually have bodily autonomy in terms of our choice to, to become mothers if, or, or to end a pregnancy. I guess my big question is, what do you see as our future? Ireland passes less restrictive laws, and then a couple years later, we go back to the dark ages? Where do we go from here? Oh, my gosh. Well, if only I could answer that question. <laughs> and, you know, for I'm, us, please. I'm, I'm, I live part of the year in Mexico, and I'm going on back home there on Monday, and Mexico has just legalized abortion. Um, so it's true. Around us, we're becoming more enlightened and acknowledging the autonomy, the bodily autonomy of human beings, you know, all human beings to decide because, because if men carried pregnancy, this would never be a discussion. You know, there would never be a question that they could continue or end, you know, on their own accord. Of course that would happen. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer, obviously. I don't think any of us know the answer. What I would hope is we would get more balance um, on the Supreme Court, but there, there are just so many aspects involved in all of this. Um, you know, I, I, could, I could also pray that some of the states who, who are um, supportive of childbearing people will continue to be so and continue to support those who don't want to be childbearing people. Um, but that doesn't do much for, for those who are in, you know, in the middle of the state of Texas, that's a huge state, and they'd have to travel so far to, to get an abortion. And it also really ties the hands of providers like me, who might be caring for somebody who's has a wanted pregnancy, but has a baby that is severely deformed, um, no brain, and encephalism, there are a number of conditions um, that also are associated with illness in, in the mom. And so if that birthing person is at risk for their own life, then the provider's hands are tied in terms of making appropriate decisions for how to care for that person. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, to me, the most terrifying uh, point of things. And also that there are people in control in making these decisions who have no, cl no clue what they're talking about saying things like, you know, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, you could take it out of the tube and put it in the uterus. I mean, these are the things that our legislators, you know, are saying in hearings um, where they're just, they, they're just so stupid. <laughs> like well, they also, so loophole to that, I have my 
I don't have a uterus, but I do have my tubes. I could have an ectopic pregnancy and no uterus to put that baby in. <laughs> Theoretically. Theoretically. Not yeah. being a very good vessel there, Lux. I know. <laughs> I only had three. What I've just failed my feminine duties. Oh my gosh. Get with the program. <laughs> You probably should adopt some more kids or something. I know what's going to happen now as I become menopausal. Oh, God, my reason for existence is fading away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I promise you, it could be good. It's going (laughs) to get better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Colleen, thank you so much. It's wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I looked over your, your bio on LinkedIn and the teaching and the work you're doing with all, just all of it. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's good to meet you, Lux. You too. You're listening to Wild Women on KZYX, where we're talking about abortion and abortion rights. I'm Lux Karpov. And I'm Alicia Bales. When did you first hear about abortion? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I feel like I knew about abortion before I knew about a lot of things I should have known about (laughs) that were much healthier. It was just always a part of the dialogue. I grew up in a very conservative Christian church, a Grace Brethren church. It was a very conservative. I went to church three to five times a week, um, almost in my entire life growing up. I went to a Christian elementary school and high school and college for part of it. Uh, it was heavy indoctrination, and abortion was – and I was, I was born in 76, so in California, Long Beach, and the abortion was a major – player during my entire life <clears throat> it was the issue so from the time you were like really really little I don't know like, I can't remember when abortion was introduced mm-hmm. I just knew that it was an, it was a subject I always had strong feelings about as a child I want to be very clear that I am full pro-choice and without exception and I have been since I've been basically an adult all of this was when I was a child uh as you were growing up in this conservative church yes I think the, the <clears throat> kind of the core is that the idea the idea that abortion is wrong, this religious idea that abortion is morally wrong, comes from a religion that is anti-women. It is. When you have such a, a large majority, or not majority, but a large number of the country that is so committed to this cause and so committed to their religion, religion really does something to your brain. It really makes it hard to think outside of that religious like bubble it's very 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 difficult everything becomes I mean even for years I tried to justify everything within the bubble before I realized I could just pop the bubble and walk out <laughs> like it's really hard even for someone who was smart and questioning it's a really hard thing to do but 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 you have an entire so you have the bottom like you have this like it's kind of a pyramid scheme all the people at the bottom all the republicans at the bottom which are most of the country most of the country of Republicans, they've all been trained that if you just keep doing this, your life is going to be what you what they're up the top people are saying it's going to be. And it's never actually going to be because these pyramid schemes never work. But that's kind of the religious structure right now is mm-hmm. they're all the little minions who are being taught that this is the absolute truth. The middle and upper echelon of this group, they know that it's not. There is no top Republican right now that really believes they're fighting for the lives of babies. In fact, I would say that most of them have probably paid for abortions. Mm-hmm or facilitated abortions for various people in their lives at some point. Probably most Democrats have too. They're not preventing rich people from accessing this. They're preventing poor people and people of color and people who 
are already disenfranchised. And it's about control. It is not about saving babies. And people who don't have good, accurate information about how their bodies work, accurate information about their rights to say no to sex, their rights, their ability to protect themselves from pregnancy. Like they're not getting the information in the first place that would help them to avoid pregnancy. I think that's true. I think it's true too. And here's the thing is that they don't, they, the reason that they don't want that is because right now their entire um, political organization and religious organization is structured on the idea that men are the head of the household and women are in service to men in their community and their children. If abortion, if they become more reasonable about abortion, if they come out and openly acknowledge that there are better and more effective ways to prevent unwanted pregnancies, to prevent abortion, to save the babies, if you want to save the babies, if that's really your goal, if they did that, they would have to, they would be giving women power. They would be giving women in their community power and women in our community power. And they don't want, especially anyone who's not Republican to have power, but they don't want women to have power in general because it crumbles their entire organizational structure, both politically and religiously. And everything that they have, their entire pyramid is based on women acknowledging that they are second class citizens in their marriage and in their lives and putting themselves at service to the men in their lives and their children in their lives. And if they don't do that, if all the women realize they don't have to do that, their entire system falls Mm -hmm. and they lose their power because they built their power on the bodies of women. Mm -hmm. And that is why the power, like the power has to shift and the laws have to shift. And right now I just don't think we're in a good position to do any of that because the Republicans have built a fortress of this, uh, with this issue. And they have brainwashed their entire base about this issue. And it has been going on for too long. I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's interesting when you say that about Republicans, when you're talking about the, the sort of deep belief that women should be subservient to men in the private sphere, but also in the public sphere. I don't think that's reserved for Republicans. And I don't think it I don't even think it's reserved for any particular race. I think it crosses political lines, racial lines, class lines. It's like one of the one of the dynamics of power in our culture that touches every woman, every person, everywhere that we talk the least about, I think. That is really true. And I think that's part of the reason that they can keep this foothold in power with fewer numbers than us because our entire social structure is set up to benefit them. And our economy is based on women's free labor. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like what's so astonishing to me is if they really get their way, they're going to regret it. Because if they really ban abortion throughout this country, if they really get their way and no place is legal for women to get abortion, first of all, women are still going to be getting an abortion. But women are going to die. Women are going to leave behind children, families. A lot of women who are seeking abortion already have kids they have to take care of and they can't physically or financially afford to have another pregnancy to do that. They will risk their life to not do that. And they're going to have a collapse of a certain like demographic of workers who can't work if they're constantly pregnant. You're taking women out of the workforce and they, and they think that's what they want. But when women leave the workforce and women die because they can't handle the unpaid labor that they're being forced into, you're going to have a collapse of society. Like I, I, that sounds really dramatic, but our society is no longer like you can't go back to the way it was and we shouldn't want to. But even if we did want to, we can't. Our economy wouldn't allow it. So we are not set up to be the single earning household of husband goes to work and wife stays home in pearls and high heels, you know, mopping the floor. Like we're not designed for that anymore. 
we barely were to begin with. And it wasn't healthy for anybody. And that was only for white women anyway. And that was only for white women anyways. <laughs> Everybody, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the consequences of this are ridiculous. Yeah. And Definitely. I just can't believe we're here. In this next segment, I have a story I'd like to share. It's called Pink Confetti. And I'm a full-time author. And when I went about planning the first show for Wild Women, I wanted to include a piece that I had written. This is outside of my normal genre and my normal scope. But as I sat reflecting on the stories that we've all listened to of women who sought illegal abortion out of desperation, and as I reflected on my journey as a woman growing up in a society that discounted my bodily autonomy at every turn, I created this story. I hope you find it as powerful to listen to as I did to write. I'm Lux Karpov, and this is Pink Confetti. You smile when you cut the cake. Pink confetti declaring to all so much more than just her gender. Her genitals are female. Congratulations. Or maybe thoughts and prayers. That pink confetti will pave the road she will walk, tripping her at every step with impossible standards, inadequate care, glaring deficiencies in a system that was never designed for her at all. She feels the difference before she can articulate it, the silent code that started with pink confetti, then pink dresses, then pink lipstick. She's so pretty. What a lovely girl. She's going to break boys' hearts. Better clean that gun, Dad. Ha, ha, ha. She wants to run and play, get dirty and skin knees, but she is not just a child as a boy might be. She is a girl. She is a doll. She is an expectation of others. Don't mess your dress. Don't get dirty. Don't climb trees. Don't run and play lest you look less pretty. Stay clean. Stay proper. Good girl. As she grows, you smile and ask for her help, making dinner, cleaning up, doing laundry, caring for others. While her father and brothers play video games, she plays house, learning her place, learning the rules. Why can't I play? Why can't they help? She doesn't understand. You shrug. They don't know how to do it right. They'll just mess it up. Women are better at these things, don't you know? It's in our DNA, the nucleotide for dishwashing. Boys just don't get it. Sorry, you say with a smile. She comes home crying from school, a boy she thought a friend had turned cruel, teasing, pulling hair, taking her things. You tell her not to worry. That just means he has a crush. That's how boys are. It's a compliment, really. You should feel grateful he likes you. You smile, but it doesn't reach your eyes. She dries her own tears, resigned. It doesn't take long. She's still just a child. Twelve going on thirty, the men like to joke when the catcalls begin. The first time she feels it like a punch to the gut, the air escaping her as surely as if his words had hit. He calls her vile names, shouts out of his car as he follows her home from school. Smile, he says. You're prettier when you smile. She smiles out of fear, tear burning her eyes, as she tries to become as small as possible, invisible. You tell her it's normal. It's just how men are. Ignore them, you say. But also, what were you wearing? Men can't help themselves. It's our job not to tempt them. Either way, it's not their fault. Either way, she feels the blame. She knows this lesson already, learned it in kindergarten. Boys can do what they want to her without consequence. She has no voice. She has only a smile, and that pink confetti still stuck to her feet, turning to tar. Her pace slows. Her cycle comes and brings with it pain, sickness, misery. She cries, clutching her belly, can't go to school. Missed classes and fewer sports and doctors saying there's nothing they can do. It's the curse of her sex, the price of pink confetti. She smiles through her tears when her math teacher tells her girls just aren't as good as boys at this, and so doesn't help her when she asks, just stares at her budding breasts and leers. 
All the girls know. They quietly, nervously laugh about it after class. The pervy teacher no girl can get an A from, but better wear pants and a sweater to class. He's clumsy and drops things a lot, has to bend down low to pick them up, always near a girl with a pretty skirt. She smiles still. One Friday night, behind the bleachers, the cheers of a crowd, the soundtrack, she kisses a boy for the first time. It's nice, until he pushes. She says no. He retaliates. If he can't have what he wants, he'll tell everyone she did it anyways. And so he does. The next time a boy pushes, she doesn't say no. What's the point? Her no doesn't mean what a boy's does. Her no is a preference, easy to ignore. His displeasure matters more than her unease. And isn't this just the same lesson taught in a new font? When she's two weeks late, her second year of college, she takes the test. Positive. She tells the father, but he isn't interested. It's her problem to deal with. So she searches for options, for a way to terminate what she is not ready to undertake. She is still a child herself, still in school, working two jobs just to cover books. She has no ability to care for a child, so she searches. But there are no legal options for what she must do. And as she stands at that crossroad, pink confetti as far as the eye can see, she looks into the future. Down one path, she has the child. You smile and congratulate her. It's a girl! More pink confetti is thrown. She drops out of college. Her work asks her back the day after she gives birth. Don't you need the paycheck? She does. Still bleeding, she returns, leaving her newborn with others. She receives no postnatal care, no help with child care, no su support from the society that forced her into this. Still, she tries to smile, but it doesn't reach her eyes. At the crossroads, she looks at her only other option, knowing what awaits her if she has this child. She reaches for the hanger, and the blood, when it comes, looks a lot like pink confetti. How can you stand there and tell me that you're pro-life? What do you mean when you shout about the right to life? Are you talking about life of a woman are you talking about the life of a physician are you talking about the millions of hungry children already dying in this
That was Rachel Tree with her song, Right to Decide. That was a powerful song. Amazing. You're listening to Wild Women on KZYX. I'm Alicia Bales. And I'm Lux Karpov. As we brace ourselves for the coming year with federal abortion rights under threat and over 20 states poised with anti-abortion laws ready to enact, an unexpected ally has arisen. Men. Around the country, men have rallied to support their partners by getting vasectomies. A Washington Post article cites an increase of 15% in one Texas clinic with a new state law cited as the reason. According to the same article, in their own form of protest, state lawmakers in Alabama, Illinois, and Pennsylvania have introduced legislation that highlights the gender double standards with regard to reproductive rights, including a law that would require vasectomies for men over 40 or who already have had at least three children. Of course, men are up in arms about that law that might restrict or control their reproductive choices as well they should be. And perhaps that outrage is finally starting to encompass protecting women's bodily autonomy as well. Well, it's nice to see men taking some action here and doing something to help prevent abortions. It absolutely is. And I look forward to the first male birth control pill that men actually take, despite all the side effects. And that's our thought (laughs) for this New Year's Eve 2021. May you have a marvelous new year. And thanks so much for listening. Wild Women can be heard at 7 o'clock on the fifth Friday of the month, alternating with Pride Radio and Pride Nation 101. Our next show is April 29th. Which is my birthday. Awesome. Thanks to midwife Colleen Donovan Batson for being our guest. And Happy New Year's, everyone. I'm going to leave you with my favorite toast. It's an Irish toast. May the best of your past be the worst of your future. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.